turn in the Holy Scriptures tonight to the Gospel according to John chapter 3. John 3. The texts that we'll be looking at tonight are the familiar verses 14 through 17. I'm preaching on this uh, for a couple of reasons. First, I've been preaching a series through the beginning chapters of the Gospel according to John, and this is the sermon I preached last week in my own congregation, but I also hope that it serves as a a Lent uh, sermon for you in preparation for thinking about the death of our Savior Jesus Christ as we do a week from this coming Friday on Good Friday, and then also thinking on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So John 3, and we're going to read the first uh, 21 verses of the chapter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God." And thus far, we read God's Word. The text, as I said, is verses 14 through 17. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 16 of this chapter is probably the most familiar verse, at least in the New Testament, if not the entire Bible. It's the most familiar verse in the entire Bible. But it's also probably one of the most distorted verses in all of the Bible. And that's why it's important that we understand what this verse in its context says. And I remind us again, context is always important. And it is in the looking at this text that we consider tonight as well. The context is this. Nicodemus, a great ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, He comes to Jesus. That's recorded in the beginning of John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus, I would judge, in pride. He did not come bowing the knee to Jesus. It might seem like he did because he calls Jesus rabbi. But that was a title that also would have been given to Nicodemus in his day. And so he's a great teacher of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin coming to another teacher, a great teacher, Jesus, and saying to Jesus, I can see that you're a great teacher. We as leaders of the Jews can see that you're a great teacher. Hey, why don't you come and learn from us? Why don't you be part of us? Nicodemus, I don't believe, is going to Jesus at this moment thinking he needs to learn from Jesus Christ. Jesus addresses that pride of Nicodemus and shows Nicodemus what he most needs. He needs his eyes open to truth, and for his eyes to be open to truth, he needs a work in his heart. He needs to be born again. That's what Jesus says in verse 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's That's the only way to see the kingdom of God and to be part of the kingdom of God. It's to be born again. Nicodemus needs this. That work of being born again is a supernatural work. It's a divine work. It's the work of God in the heart implanting the new life of Jesus Christ. But now notice the response of Nicodemus to all of these things. Verse 9. Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? He doesn't understand. And so notice Jesus' response in verses 10 through 13. Jesus begins by rebuking Nicodemus. Art thou a master of Israel? The idea of master is teacher. Here, you're some great teacher. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're a Pharisee. And you don't know these things? What knowledge do you have? 
Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus here, first of all, in those verses, but then after that, Jesus has compassion on Nicodemus and takes some time to explain things to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ does that by pointing Nicodemus to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, this is what Nicodemus knows. He's a leader of the Jews. He's an expert in the Old Testament Scriptures. So that's where the Lord Jesus Christ points him and begins his teaching. But as he does so, what he's saying to Nicodemus is this. Remember, it's an answer to his question in verse 9. How can these things be? What Jesus Christ is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you need me. You need me. And that's how these things can be. That such a supernatural work is worked in your heart. That's the same word to us tonight. How can these things be? Well, it's in Him and in Him alone. You and I need Him. We need the one who is lifted up upon the cross of Calvary. That's what we consider tonight. The Son of Man lifted up. That's our theme. The Son of Man lifted up. We notice first the idea of this, secondly, the reason for it, and then finally, the result. Again, remember, Jesus is answering Nicodemus' question in verse 9, how can these things be? In answer to that question, the Lord Jesus Christ points Nicodemus to Old Testament history that is recorded for us in Numbers 21. It's the history, and you kids will remember this history. It's the history when God sent poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel when they were out in the desert on their way to the promised land of Canaan. Israel was on their, pro- on their way to the promised land of Canaan for a second time. There was a first time, but they wouldn't enter into the land because of the report they received about the giants and the walled cities in the land. So God sent them out into the wilderness for 40 more years. They are now coming near in Numbers 21 to the promised land again. And God had taken care of them. He delivered them out of the slavery in Egypt. He brought them out into the wilderness and remember that He gave them manna to eat every day. Sometimes He miraculously provided water for them in the desert. Along with that, their clothes and their shoes never wore out. God promised to care for them and God delivered on those promises as He always does. But now as they've been in the wilderness for almost 40 years, the people of Israel are discouraged and in their discouragement, they lash out at Moses and God. They brought a complaint to Moses and their complaint to Moses was they were unhappy and spending so much time in the desert, in the wilderness, and they were unhappy with having simply this manna for food day after day for almost 40 years. From a certain perspective, it might look like to us that their complaint was understandable. But you and I should understand that their complaint was nothing less than rebellion 
against God and His faithful care of them in the desert. So Jesus here is pointing this history out to Nicodemus and reminding Nicodemus of what God did in response to this complaint. He sent a plague of poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. Now just think about that for a moment. Kids, think about that for a moment. Think about snakes coming into the building here, the church building, and being all over the floor here of the auditorium. If there were snakes all over the floor in this auditorium, I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes, I would be standing on the top of this pulpit. And then on top of that, think about poisonous snakes that were going through the camp of the people of Israel. They were biting the people, and people were dying. Numbers 21 calls these snakes fiery serpents. And they were called fiery serpents not simply because their color may have been orange, but it was more because when they would bite, the venom could be felt in the body like tingling and fire that was going through their veins so that the people then, as they felt that, would soon become sick and they would die from the poison of those venomous snakes. Remember why God did this. It was his judgment upon Israel. It was the reminder to them and to us yet today what we deserve because of our sin. We deserve death. God reminded his people of that. But it was also a chastisement of God. And God used the snakes that went through the camp of Israel to bring many of the people in Israel to repentance. We read in Numbers 21 that the people then confessed their sin to Moses and they asked Moses to pray. And what they asked him to pray was that God would uh, take away the snakes from their camp. Well, you remember the answer of the Lord. It was not the answer that they expected. God did not take away the serpents out of the camp right away, but instead the Lord instructed Moses to make a serpent out of brass and hang it upon a pole and then instruct the people that when they were bit by those snakes, look to that brass serpent upon the pole and they would be healed. So Moses did what the Lord told him to do and the people looked at that brass serpent and when they were bitten by those snakes, they were healed. But the implication is, is that there were others who did not look at that brass serpent and they were not healed and they, were, they died if they were bitten by those venomous snakes. Now again, remember, Jesus is bringing up this history to Nicodemus to answer his question in verse 9, how can these things be? And the question then is for us is, as Jesus brings this up to Nicodemus, what's his point? What's his point? How is this an answer to the question of Nicodemus? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ gives a comparison there in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the point of Jesus' comparison here is to show Nicodemus and to show us our need 
for substitutionary atonement. It shows us our need for the cross of Jesus Christ. That comes out from the word lifted up. Now that word can have two ideas. One idea is exaltation, but that certainly is not the idea here, that the Son of Man is lifted up in exaltation. That was being lifted up resulted in that, but that's not the idea. Instead, the idea is lifted up when he died upon the cross, lifted up in the crucifixion. The idea is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the substitute that we need who takes upon himself the poison and the punishment of our sin. That was the idea of that brass serpent that God commanded Moses to make. The idea was, is in looking upon that, there was a a wrath or a judgment that would fall there instead of upon the people. And that's what Jesus is explaining here about Himself. The brass snake pointed to the one who would take the judgment that the people deserve. So also our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who took on himself the poison, the death, and the judgment of our sin. That's the heart and the essence of what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. That's what we remember on Good Friday. An atoning sacrifice for sin. Payment made by a substitute on our behalf. And that helps us to understand verse 16 as well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the giving of His only begotten Son is to that. It's to the cross. It's to making payment for our sin. Nicodemus, or Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this, this is what you need. This is how these things can be. One other thing to notice here is the name that Jesus gives, gives to himself as he speaks of himself on the cross in verse 14. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You'll probably remember that this is the most frequent way in which our Savior referred to Himself. He referred to Himself as Son of Man. But the question is, why does He do that? And why does He do that here? And there are those who say, well, He does that to emphasize His humanity. Well, there's truth to that, but there's something more to it than that. This is a name of our Savior that you find in the Old Testament. You find it in Ezekiel chapter 2. You also find it in Daniel chapter 7. And the idea in those passages is that this is a title for the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, who became man to accomplish our salvation. So it's not just it emphasizes His humanity, but what it emphasizes is the wonder of the incarnation for our salvation. And and that's something emphasized by the Gospel according to John. John's emphasizing that. Chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we have it again. Son of man, and God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What's behind all of that is that great wonder of the incarnation. Son of God becoming flesh for our redemption. 
And that's what explains the power of the cross. The one who hung there is the Son of God. Only God could deliver us. But also the one who hung there is our substitute, very man, who could take our place there. But now there's one other thing to notice as we look at these words of Jesus to Nicodemus. The point to Nicodemus is that only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have everlasting life. Our Lord Jesus Christ is saying here that He is the only, the only source of salvation. And that parallels the history in Numbers 21. That was the whole point of that brass serpent. There was no other way for the people of Israel to be delivered from those snake bites. It was only by looking to the brass serpent. So also the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, there is salvation. There is salvation for those who look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a cure for sin, and it's only for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and look to Him. Now that's not, Jesus is not saying here, well, it's dependent upon you doing that. No, that's not what He's saying at all. We'll come to that in a few moments again. But instead, He's stating the reality The reality that those who look upon him, they are saved. It's the truth. It's the truth that is clearly set before us here in John 3. But the point of Jesus' answer to Nicodemus then is, Nicodemus, you need me. You need me because I'm the only one who can make payment for your sin. And... So going back to being born again and regeneration, the cross is the source of all spiritual blessings, including having a change of heart and having our eyes open to the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So remember the question, how can these things be? Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, it's only in me. It's in my cross and the gifts that flow out of that cross. So our Lord Jesus Christ is setting Himself, or teaching us about Himself as the one who is lifted up for our salvation and redemption. Now the question follows, why? Why did our Savior do this? Why did God send Him to do this. And that's verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As I said in the introduction, this is probably the, one of the most well known verses in all of the Bible and also one of the most distorted verses in all of the Bible. And there's a reason that Satan attacks a verse like this. The reason that he attacks a verse like this is to distract us so that we don't see the message of the gospel that is found in it. So we, the only thing we might worry about then is getting it right. Now, it's important to get it right, 
But the reason it's important to get it right is for the message of this verse. And the message of the verse is, this is what stands behind the cross. The love of God. I'm going to come to that love of God in a moment, but I do want to face the ways in which this verse is distorted. The way in which the verse is distorted, of course, is when it uh, when people consider the objects of the love of God. And the question is then, who is the world that is the object of the love of God? Notice some of the answers that are given in the church world today. There are some who say that the objects of God's love is everyone in the entire world. Everyone. And not only are they the objects of His love, but they also teach a universal salvation. Now, there aren't many who teach in the end a universal salvation, but there are some. Or they at least leave open the possibility that in the end, those who have rejected Jesus Christ in this life will be given a second chance to believe in Him, and they will, and they will accept Jesus Christ at that time. Now, we don't have to spend a lot of time with this, because this is not a prominent teaching in the church world but recognize that that cannot be true because later on, Jesus speaks of the fact that there are those who perish. And the whole of the Bible speaks of the fact that there are those who perish. There is not a universal salvation of God. But the other wrong interpretation of this passage is the Arminian interpretation. And that interpretation is, is that God loves the world so much and everyone in the world, every person head for head, he loves them so much that he provides the way of salvation for everyone. They would say that God's will when it comes to salvation is not that he saves particular people. But instead, God's plan or will of salvation is that he will save everybody and anybody who accepts Jesus Christ or believes in Jesus Christ. That's all that the will and the plan of God is. He will save anyone who accepts or believes in Christ. The idea of this Interpretation of the passage is that God on the one hand does his part, but man also on his end must do his part. And so between God and man, there's a coming together and a salvation that is accomplished. But this is not what the text is saying. And in fact, if this is what the text is saying, what does that say about the love of God? What does that say about the work of Jesus Christ and that's brought out in the Canons of Dort. I'm not going to take the time to point that out tonight. You can read that for yourself in the Canons. But the point is, is, there's a desire of God to save everybody, and everybody is not saved. Then God's love is not effectual, and the saving work of Jesus Christ is really, in the end, very weak. Because He desires to save more, but in the end, cannot do it. So when we read in the text, God loving the world, what's the idea of that word world? Well, we recognize it cannot refer to every person in the entire world. 
We should also do justice to the wording of the text and realize that you cannot simply substitute elect for the word world. Instead, we see and understand that Jesus is indicating that salvation is beyond the Jews. It's it's beyond Israel. God has a love for His people that are found among the nations of the world. The Greek word here is cosmos, world. And God saves the world in His people that are found throughout the nations, tongues and tribes of this world. And these ones who God saves are identified in the passage very particularly as believers. In other places, they are identified as the elect. And here in the Gospel according to John, they are identified as the ones that the Father gave to the Son from all eternity. So we see that the very idea of the text is particular. Particular. But the idea is God saves and loves the world of His people that are throughout the nations of the world. Now let's get back to the main idea that is found here in this verse. For God so loved the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ is saying here that God gave His Son to be our substitute because of His great love. We always want to hear about the love of God, don't we? The one thing that's most important for us as the people of God is what's in God's heart toward us? God is a God who is love. We read that in 1 John 4 at the beginning of our worship tonight. He's a God who is love. There is love in the heart of this one true and living God. There's love for Himself, a perfect and pure love as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also this God has determined from all eternity to reveal this love outside of Himself. And thus, this is the heart of God towards His people. He has the desire to bless His people with the highest good. The highest good. The highest good is not determined by you and me. The highest good is not determined by this world in which we live. The highest good is determined by Him. And what is that? It's life and fellowship with Him forever. The highest good is that we're drawn to this God so that we know Him, we know His love, and we love Him, and we dwell with Him in that perfect love forever and ever. That highest good is this life and fellowship with God. But now the text, when it emphasizes the love of God, it's not emphasizing that desire of God, it's emphasizing the activity of this love. Notice that in a couple of ways. First of all, with the very simple word, he gave. That's a synonym for love. Very simple word, he gave. He gave us something. He gave his son, even though it's simple, it's at the same time profound and deep and rich. He gave his only begotten son 
in his love for us. There you see what's in the heart of God. You want to know what's in the heart of God toward you? Look at his actions toward you and toward all of us and toward all of his people. He gave his only begotten son. The other word that emphasizes that is the word so. And the idea here is not so much. They love the world so much. But the idea of that word so is in this way. He loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. He lifted up his son to bear the judgment and the wrath that you and I deserve for all of our sins. And it's out of that very love then that gave his son that he works in our hearts as well and gives us new life, causes us to be born again. The root of our salvation, the source of our salvation, all of it is the love of God. Overwhelming, isn't it? It ought to be overwhelming to us. It ought to be overwhelming when we consider our sin. That He so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son and then it's for us. Just consider that for a a moment from the history of redemption. Remember, going back to the very beginning, how God created all things. He created fish, he created birds, he created animals. Then on the sixth day, he created man. Formed him out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and created man in his image and likeness. Thus he gave man an exalted position in this world. And after he created man, he said to man, Now rule over this creation. And as you rule over this creation, obey me, be ye holy, for I am holy. And now in particular, obey this command I give you, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're not told how long it took for Adam and Eve to eat of that fruit, but I don't think it was very long. So that soon after God created man, soon after God gave him the creation, soon after God called him to obey, man revolted. And it wasn't just some rebellion on the side or something that was minor. But man rebelled by disobeying this direct command of God. God said, don't eat. They ate. Just think for a moment, in a very reverent way, if you were God, what you might think you would do at that moment. I was thinking about that, and I would think, well, destroy, there's only two people here. Be done with them and start over. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to save his people. What did he do? Well, he comes to Adam and Eve, and he promises them a way of escape. He he promises to send the seed of the woman But then remember what happened after that. And this is just as broad in general, but remember what happened after that. In the end, God created a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. He promised them the land of Canaan, and he promised that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. 
And what did that nation do? Well, after God built up that nation, after God gave them the promised land, after bringing them down to Egypt for a time, preserving them through the wilderness, giving them that land, what happened to that nation? Well, they rebelled against God again. They worshipped idols. They lived like the wicked nations around them. When God sent them prophets to call them to repentance and warn them of what they were doing, they rejected the prophets and even killed those prophets of God. And what did God do? He remained faithful to his promise and he sent his son. And what did the people who knew about the promises of God to send to Messiah, what did they do to the Messiah? They nailed him to the cross. And what did God do through that very nailing to the cross? He saved his people and some of the very ones who nailed him to that cross in their hatred of him. Some of them would be converted and changed later in their lives. What did God do? He saved his people. What explains that? After all of that, what explains it? What explains it is the unfailing and unchanging love of God. Now, before we look at this in a wrong way, think about it from this perspective. What have we done with the Son of God? How have we rejected Him in our lives? How have we sinned? How have we rebelled? How have we disobeyed knowingly and willingly the Word of God? And what does God bring to us? Well, this Word... It's found in John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Beloved, you and I need to hear and to know of that love of God for us. What a love that He has demonstrated to us by giving His Son. So many today reject this word. They want a love of God for everyone. Not only that, but they object to the fact that there's only one way. Jesus Christ is saying here there's only one way. There's only one way to be saved. Many people today reject that. They say, why one way? Why shouldn't there be more ways if God's a God of love? He'll give many different ways to bring His people to Himself. Now, those are the wrong questions. The question really is this, why is there even one way for us to be saved? We don't deserve such a salvation and we don't deserve such a love. May we say with John as he speaks in 1 John 3, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What a perfect love, a beautiful love, an amazing love, a transforming love, a saving love. That's the love of our God to us. With all of the wrong views of this passage, let us not lose the main message of it. God so loved the world, and we as his people know that love. We also find in this passage the result of this, the result of this. That comes out repeatedly 
in these verses and verses that follow. In verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting but have eternal life. Verse 16, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 36, at the end, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Two things that we want to see and understand tonight. The first is this those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will perish. They will perish. That warning word needs to be issued here in the church yet today. And the perishing there is not simply dying, but the perishing here is facing the wrath of God. That comes out of the history that Jesus referred to. The point was, when Moses lifted up that brass serpent, that those who looked... They were healed. Those who didn't were not. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the same thing here. There's a warning to Nicodemus here. Nicodemus, if you don't believe, there is no life for you. Nicodemus, you must humble yourself. You must bow the knee. You must see how much you need me. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who don't perish. That's often a word that I bring at a funeral message. And often bring that at a funeral message because I don't know my audience. And maybe there's someone in the audience who's not heard the gospel, or there's someone in the audience who is rebelling against God, and they need to hear that word of God that those who don't believe perish, and they will not have everlasting life. But understand, beloved, it is a word that's needed within the church as well. There, there needs to be a warning issued, because there can be hypocrites in the church. There can be those who are not believing in the church We need to be turned to God and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this word needs to be heard as well. Those who don't believe perish. But on the other side, we understand that those who believe have everlasting life. It's not a conditional statement. The point is not, well, if you believe, then you have everlasting life. You have to do your part. God did His. Now you must do yours Now remember again, this is statement of fact. Those who believe have everlasting life. Jesus repeats it throughout John 3, showing the importance of that. Those who believe have everlasting life. What is that everlasting life? Well, that's the highest good. That's the gift of God to His people. It's life in fellowship with Him in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. It's life of pure beauty and pure bliss forever and ever. It's life without sin. It's life in the face of Jesus Christ. It's life serving our God forever and ever. How wonderful is that everlasting life. And that's the everlasting life for those who see and know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as those who looked upon that brass serpent 
They were delivered. They were delivered in that way. So also, those who are saved are those who look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember Nicodemus' question. His question is, how can these things be? How can it be that one would be born again and have this work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts? Jesus Christ is saying the basis of it all is the cross. The basis of it all is the love of God. And it's for those who believe in Him. May we then, as believers, keep looking, keep looking to Jesus Christ for everything that we need. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful for this good news. We are thankful for eyes that see and hearts that believe that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And if there are those who we know of who don't see and know this, we pray according to Thy will, work this in them, change their hearts, open their eyes, that they may see and know Thy love in Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for Thy love. May we live out of that love in this new week. We pray this in Jesus' name.